The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Starting first in math in Psalm 22, verses 27 to 31. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, and he has done it. And now moving to Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, the visit of the wise men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come, may, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen, where it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for reading the scripture this morning. You know, there's a group of guys that uh, regularly do some stuff around the facility uh, here, led by Phil Nickel, and um, I've often wondered, because they talk about these things called safety meetings, and uh, I've often wondered what those safety meetings are. So yesterday, the chairman of the board, Dave Barton, and I infiltrated a safety meeting, and uh, we, we saw them, and they were eating donuts and drinking coffee. And so, uh, so now we know what the code word's all about. Uh, but just so you know, they, they did do a little bit of work outside. They put up a snow fence, and, uh, and they were doing other stuff. But uh, we sure appreciate those guys and what they do. And uh, anyway, we're grateful. Hey, listen, I'd just like to pray with us a little bit more before we get into the Word of God. And so would you join me as I lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to uh, be able to be celebrating Advent, and we're thinking of you as the one, Jesus Christ, who is for the nations, and we've been led in that theme this fall ever since Mission Sunday. 
back in October, we're thankful, Lord, for how, Christ, you are a global God and that you have every people group on your heart. And we think of even today the things that are going on around this world, oh God. We pray that you might ease the suffering that is happening, Lord, in many parts, many corners of this globe. We think of the tornado in Kentucky, oh God, and just the many lives that have been just ravaged by that. Oh Father, we think of BC and the flooding, as well as the opioid crisis, God, that's going on, how many lives being affected by these things. We think, Father, of those in Mexico that were killed, migrants in the back of a truck. Father, we're praying for the Russia-Ukraine border and the unrest there. I think of the 11 that were kidnapped in Nigeria. And the list goes on and on, oh Father. And not one corner of this globe are you blind to, oh Father. Not one little unit, not one little person or family. We thank you that we can lift up many needs and cares to you, oh God, and know that you care. You are the God of all comfort, the Father of compassion. And so, Lord, we lift up those that are suffering. And different people in this room and at home will be thinking of different needs around the globe or in their own families. But, Lord, we lift it all up to you. And we thank you that we can raise this up and know that you are already there. God, you're already there. And so we want to join you in our prayers. We want to join many others that are praying for relief, for help. Oh, God, for you indeed are the king of the nations. And so come, O oh Lord, in your sovereignty. Come and rule and reign and have your way where there has been people that have been not experiencing your way. And may we be those that help your kingdom to come and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so help us, Lord, as we think of your word this morning and open our hearts and our minds and, and help us, O oh Lord, to make room in our hearts for your kingdom to come there so that we might be your vessels. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I thought I would begin the sermon this morning with an illustration of royalty. And uh, I'm not sure what your Christmas celebrations are like, but um, the people that live in the royal household in England call it the QXB. The QXB is the Queen's Christmas broadcast. And I confess that it is not part of our routine at the Jank Home that we listen into the Queen's message on Christmas Day on television. But I know that millions around the world do. They listen in. They wonder what she's got to say. In fact, since 1953, it's been an essential feature for many people for over 60 years. And uh, we're told by those who have studied it, have told us that this is the most personal expression of, of any royal duty that the queen has all year long. And so if you want to hear from the queen's heart, this is likely the place that you and I are going to be hearing. No other writer, no other official is involved in helping her write what she says on Christmas Day. And a group has analyzed the messages over these past 60 years, and they've come to the conclusion that in the last several years, there has been a tone difference in the meaning of Christmas articulated and in a personal expression of faith that the queen has. 
For example, in the year 2000, uh, she writes about, a, uh, she devotes an entire section to the life and teachings of Christ, and she adds that, that these things provide her, in her life, a framework in which she tries to live. In 2014, she described her own personal faith in Christ as the anchor of her life. In 2016, she said, Billions of people now follow Christ's teachings and find in him the guiding light for their lives. And I am one of them, she says. I am one of them. Indeed, Queen Elizabeth seems to have lived up to one of her primary duties, which is to be a defender of the faith as the Queen of England. And when I read these uh, things this past week, one of the things that came to my mind, or the words that came to my mind, was, guess what? The queen has a king. <laughs> and it's not her late husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, Philip. It's Jesus Christ. The queen has a king. And indeed, Jesus Christ is the one who has been crowned not only king of kings, but king of queens and lord of lords. But we think about her now, and we think of the kind of monarchy that she has in Canada. We remember, for example, that there are 15 other independent nations where she is also considered a monarch. And uh, when, she was, when she was inaugurated or whatever came in in 1953, these words were spoken over her, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom, Canada, and her other realms and territories, Queen and head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. And yet you and I know, we know that it is a symbolic head, isn't it? It's not a real leader, a real governing authority. She is a royal symbolic head that does not really rule our country. Our government does what they want to do and really don't need to consult her on most items. They do what they're elected to do, usually. And... Uh, but that's not the kind of king Jesus Christ is, is he? And this morning as we think about King Jesus, king of the nations, I want to do a little comparison and think about the kind of king Jesus is. Because he's meant to really be king, king of the nations. And the kind of king that we listen to, we obey. And during this Advent celebration, we've been trying to give him his place in our hearts and in our nations. And so... And so we read the words in Luke chapter 1. When the angel appeared to the Virgin Mary, he said to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ is called ruler of kings over all the earth. Ruler of kings. Indeed, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But before we look at Jesus and his kingship, I want us to consider just briefly what the Bible says about kings and then make a comparative study of the kind of king that Jesus is. We're going to go through th three things of the kind of things that characterize the king's of this world. And the first thing I'd like to say is that worldly kings have wealth and power that come from their subjects. Worldly kings have wealth and power that come from their subjects. There's a beautiful picture in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll, you'll remember the story where the prophet Samuel is old. He's about to die, and 
his sons are not following in the ways of God. And so the elders of Israel gather with Samuel, and they say to him, you are about to die, and your sons are not being the priests that they're meant to be, and so appoint a king over us that we might be like the rest of the nations. And that's exactly what they asked. They said, let, let us have a king. <clears throat> and um, it was uh, something that displeased Samuel, but God told him this. He said, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I wonder if we should remember these words when we have trouble living out our faith on this earth. I wonder if we should remember that before anybody has rejected you for any kind of a stand that you have taken in your life to live under the kingdom of Jesus Christ, before they have rejected you, they have rejected him first as king. And you don't need to take it personally when, when somebody has a difference of values and a difference of opinion and even maybe despises you because of something you stand for. They've rejected Jesus first. They may not even know they've rejected Jesus, but they have been saying no to God. Well, Samuel's not done with Israel, and so he goes to the people of Israel, and he tries to convince them not to take a king over them. And he tells them what a king will do when you have a king. He says, this king will take your sons and appoint them to be drivers of chariots and horsemen. He's going to appoint them to be commanders of thousands and fifties. He will, he will have them plow your ground and reap your harvest and make implements of war for, for him. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and orchards. He will take a tenth over top of all that he's already taken. He's going to take a tenth of all of your wealth so that he can take care of his officers and servants. And then at the end of that little speech to Israel, Samuel says this, and one day, <laughs> one day, you will cry out to God because of your king. One day you'll cry out to God because of your king. You see, it's true for us too. If we invite any other sovereign in our lives, if we invite any other lordship over our hearts, whether it's an affection, a hobby, a person, whether it's uh, another idol, another god, demigod, whatever it might be, that command our affections and bring us that pleasure that God is meant to bring, we will one day cry out to God, to Jesus Christ, the true king, one day we'll cry out to God, deliver me. Because you see, there's no other thing that can really rule our hearts that will not enslave us one day and, and lead us to want to cry out to the real king of our hearts, Jesus. And so in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that we might be like the rest of the nations. Is that not a gravitational pull on every one of us who have said yes to King Jesus? There is this gravitational pull to be just like the rest of Canada. Do we have to take a stand on these things? Do we have to stand out? Jesus has called us to one king. And you know the story of Israel. We don't need to go into it. 
Saul was chosen as king and one king after another and, and they didn't always have a good time of it until the exile. So kings, worldly kings, will use wealth and power that is taken from their subjects. A second thing that worldly kings do is they will often abuse their wealth and power to get their way. <clears throat> now, none of us needs to be convinced of this. We all have known history and seen it enough. History is filled with tyrants and dictators who have used force to eliminate dissenters, control society, and bribe justice. We don't need to look any further than the Christmas story that was read to us this morning in Matthew chapter 2 to see what a tyrant looks like in King Herod. The wise men come from the east looking for a king. They come into the domain, the kingdom of Herod, and they look for this king that has been born, king of the Jews. And Herod's rage goes from zero to ten in a few seconds. Jealous rage. And when he is tricked by the wise men, he sends soldiers to that little town of Bethlehem who will kill every male child two years and under that would have been the peers and the friends of Jesus had they had allowed, been allowed to grow up with him and know him. The prophecy is fulfilled by Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The massacre of the infants, it's called, in Bethlehem. Worldly kings, you see, abuse their power and their wealth to save and serve themselves and for their own needs. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is given us a picture of what this looks like when he is around the Last Supper with the disciples. He's in that upper room, and he's about to share the Lord's Supper, and there's an argument that breaks out among them <clears throat> as to which of them is the greatest. It must have grieved the heart of Jesus prior the day before his crucifixion, that here are his 12 that he's poured his life into, and they're arguing with each other of which of them is the greatest. And he says to them in Luke 22, verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over others. And those in authority, they, they demand that they're being called benefactors. But not so with you. He says, rather, let the greatest among you be like the youngest, and let the leader among you be the one who serves. Jesus' idea of kingship is so different than the kings of this nation and this world that we live in. You see, there's a tendency for leaders and kings to exploit their positions, to subjugate their, those that are under their rule, and to serve themselves. We all know that. We've seen it. History tells of it. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Human history is full of stories where Kings and rulers have used their wealth and power to serve their own needs rather than serve the people with whom they will be accountable before God on the day of judgment one day and give an account of how they led, how they governed, how they protected, how they served. And then finally, <clears throat> worldly kings rise and fall, and so do their kingdoms. This is true. Os Guinness, in a book that he has written, called Renaissance, talks about nine of the greatest civilizations and cultures of all, in all of history. 
And uh, he describes Egypt, Babylon, India, China, the Mayan, Greek, Roman, Arabian, and of course, we got to put the Western civilization in there. Isn't it nice that we in the Western civilization can, can say that we were one of the greatest, the nine? <laughs> I always find that kind of interesting. Well, every one of these civilizations, of course, every one of them had various societies and various cultures, and each of those cultures and societies had various kings and rulers and called them prime ministers or presidents or chancellors or whatever you want to call them, and all of them are gone. None of them survive. They're history. If they were important enough, they might be in the history books, but many of them didn't even make it there. They're lost, gone. In November of 1922, just after World War I, a couple of British archaeologists by the name of Howard Carter and Lord Carnivon uh, did some excavations that were found in Egypt's Valley of the King. Now, there had already been many excavations by archaeologists in that valley, but most of them had not gone deep enough to find the things that these two found within months of digging. They found the king's tomb, the famous King Tutankhamun, known as King Tut. <laughs> they found his tomb and all the chambers attached to the central room of his tomb deep underground. And uh, it's incredible that uh, 3,000 years had passed and these two men were the first two that broke through the wall and entered. So incredibly undisturbed, miraculously intact was the chambers under the ground that the dusty floors still had the footprints of the builders that sealed the last wall. Can you imagine? From 3,000 years earlier, King Tut's tomb. Inside were various rooms, and inside was a collection of several thousand priceless objects that old. Gold, jewelry, furniture, statues, a chariot, weapons, most of the treasures now in the Cairo Museum. But at the center of this was a gold coffin and containing the mummified body of the teenage king. You see, King Tut was inaugurated in 1333 B.C. when he was still a child. He only reigned for 10 years. And he died at the age of 18. Hardly made his mark on history in Egypt. And I thought of the words when I saw this and read about it and saw different pictures of the, the, what was found. I thought of the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? All the rulers of all the civilizations of all of human history have come and have gone, and they are no more. We know that. But Jesus is different. How does Jesus compare to worldly kings? In John 18, it says in the Scripture, John, in John 18, uh, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, and he's asked, Are you a king? And he agrees, he's a king. But Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered up to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. We would do well to meditate on these words, wouldn't we, as Christians, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We would do well to let this verse inform our politics. (laughs) My kingdom is not of this world. We would do well to remember the kind of king that Jesus is. Let me read to you some scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1, here's how Paul tries to describe King Jesus. He says that Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. He is far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that has ever been named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You can't get any higher than that, folks. That's King Jesus. And then, and then again in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul again, who is talking about awaiting the second coming of Christ, not the first one that we are celebrating in Advent, but the second coming of Christ at the proper time, the kairos time that will come. He says, he who is blessed and the only Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. This is King Jesus. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we celebrate. He's the King of the nations. He's worthy of our highest praise, our deepest sacrifice, our most honest discipleship. He is worthy. You know, according to an ancient custom, it was the practice that when a king had died, when a monarch had died, the, the, the greeting to those around were to be this, The king is dead. Long live the king. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? The king is dead. Long live the king. When I first heard that, I thought, well, that's nonsense. If the king is dead, why would you wish him long life? And the the idea behind it is the king is dead, but hey, the kingdom will keep on going. Long Long live the king. Another king will replace him. Guess what, folks? Not true. Because every earthly kingdom had kings, but the kingdoms have no longer continued. Even the civilization that we are part of, it will end. Western civilization has a shelf life. Christendom, yes, but Christ, no, Christ is eternal. Christ's kingdom is eternal. If you're part of his kingdom, you have eternity to look forward to in his presence. So how does Jesus compare to the worldly kings. Well, the kings have wealth and power that come from their subjects. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I'm the kind of king that comes to serve you. It says in the scriptures that um, kings often abuse their wealth and power to get their way, and Jesus said, I've come down to do my father's will and to finish his work, to do God's will. And then kings rise and fall in time. Jesus' kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his reign shall never end. That's how Jesus compares with every earthly monarch or king. And that's why I love the scripture in, in Psalm 22 that was read to us. Do you know that Psalm 22 is quoted in the New Testament more frequently than any other psalm? 
And, and he's describing at the beginning of the psalm much of the suffering servant, much of the suffering of Jesus and what he accomplished going to the cross. But it ends in these glorious words that were read to us of how he's going to reign forever. It says in verse, in verse 27, 28, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Folks, one day there will be no more dictators on earth. There will be no more tyrants on earth. There will be no more oppressors on earth. Jesus will reign over his kingdom and every person who has claimed his kingship, even as God did a work in the pagan astrologers in Matthew chapter 2 who came from the Far East and arrived looking for a king and had their hearts changed, recognizing in their discernment an evil king in Herod and an incredible glorious king worthy of all treasure in Jesus Christ the baby. Even as they went in search of the king and had their hearts changed into worship when they arrived at that house where he lay. So also we believe that some of our friends and some of the people around this globe right now are going in search of Jesus and having their hearts changed into worship once they meet him. This past week, Pat and I were talking to missionary friends who were in Iraq who, who talked of dreams that Muslims are having of Jesus, coming to Jesus, going in search of Jesus because of a dream that got them going. It's happening all over the world. Jesus Christ will end history, human history, and he will remain the exalted one that is worthy of all praise. The key question is, is he enthroned in your heart? Is he enthroned in your life? Is there some adjustments needed in your heart? The priorities have gotten mixed up. The affections have gotten mixed up. Jesus has to go back up on the throne of your heart. Are you following his lordship? I want to end my sermon this morning in a very different way. And uh, I'm going to be reading a story to you from a book that we just recently received from friends of ours. And um, it's a, a story that I want to set it up because I want to, you to understand the context of this story before I read it. It's actually interesting. It's, it's a story about baptism. And um, it was interesting because Victoria, who cleans our building, Victoria Griffin is our custodian, and she and I were talking about the baptismal tanks in the churches in Thunder Bay. She was baptized at West Fort Baptist, and I was a pastor at First Baptist in Thunder Bay, and we talked about the, the architecture in the, in the baptismal tanks. You can almost swim lengths in this baptismal tank that uh, we were talking about. And, and if you know the architecture, just like our building on Skirfield, you would, you would have this choir loft, Right? And then behind a window, you would have the baptismal tank. I want you to have this in your mind, and if you've ever baptized anybody, you'll really appreciate this story. And I want you to know I have a point at the end of it. And uh, right now, we don't have a baptismal tank here. We're hoping to have one someday. 
Right now, we've been baptizing in lakes and in pools and hot tubs. And, and if you want to be baptized, we'll, we'll figure out a way to get that done. We have a hot tub here. And we blow, blow it up and heat it up, and it's ready to go. But let me read to you the story. <clears throat> this is by an author by the name of Joe Chambers. He's a pastor in Colorado. He says, I stand six foot four inches and weigh over 200 pounds, but I felt physically insignificant standing next to David. He weighed north of 400 pounds and was one of my first baptisms in my first church three decades ago. When we both stood in the baptismal, we displaced a goodly amount of water. The choir seemed a little nervous as the, these two behemoths stepped into the water behind them, for the only thing between them and a biblical flood was an eight-inch tall pane of glass. I faced the congregation. David faced my left. I told him that he would have to bend his knees and help me get himself back up after he was fully immersed. He nodded, and he licked his lips like he was a bit nervous. Turns out there was a good reason. I wore fishing waders underneath my snow-white baptismal gown. David was dressed in a blue shirt and overalls. He folded his hands together at the surface of the water, ready to clasp his nose as I tipped him back for a full dunking. I put my right hand in the middle of his back between his shoulder blades and raised my left hand, palm uh, facing out toward the congregation, and I began to recite the familiar words. David, upon your profession of faith and in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, I now baptize my brother in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. His hands went to his face. He clenched his nose as water ran down his elbows. He bent his knees. He began to lean back. I spread my feet. I'm prepared for his weight. My right hand under his back, it was strong enough, but it wasn't, it wasn't strong enough. Even with the help of the buoyancy of the water, when he passed some sort of geometric tipping point, he went down into the water like a sack of stones, and there was nothing I could do but get out of the way. He went under, fear set in, David's hand left his face, began flailing for something to grab. Not once, but twice, but three times he groped and grabbed at the curtains, anything, his bare feet slipping on the concrete floor below him. Heads in the choir turned, furrowed brows of concern, hearing the thrashing just feet away. One person later said to me he couldn't tell if I was helping him or trying to kill him. Everyone... <laughs> Everyone's eyes got as large as offering plates when David's ham-hock hands landed on the tight grip of the only thing near him, the, the glass, the only thing standing between them and a, and a flood from Noah's day. He had grabbed the glass with his right hand and my robe with his left hand. He was trying to right himself, spitting and spewing water, flaring nostrils like a surfacing beluga whale. I went low. I deadlifted him with all my might so as to take off the pressure from the glass and save the lives of men and women in the choir who tithed regularly. Somehow, somehow with the strength of Samson, I lifted David and spared everyone from the flood. As he stood and wiped the water from his eyes, the tsunami waves were slapping one end of the tank to the other. The choir relieved a, a collective sigh of relief, and, and then someone muttered, that was as close to dying in church as I've ever seen. <laughs> David climbed out of the tank. He was winded. I was too. And after we dried off, he confided in me that the reason he wanted to be baptized in our church 
because he thought I was the only preacher in the county who was large enough and strong enough to handle him. <laughs> Turns out I was wrong. And then he said something that I will never forget. <laughs> Layered with meaning, he said this. He said, Pastor, everything was going great until you let me down. Everything was going great until you let me down. And that's what I want to say today. That was my point of the story, folks. Is that every one of you know how it is to have someone let you down. Right? A friend, a family member, even pastors let you down. Government lets us down. Sometimes it's really close people to us that have let us down. And it really hurts. But the, the wonderful thing about this morning's message and the message of all eternity is that if you've got King Jesus in your life, he'll never let you down. If, he, if, 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 he, if you're in his kingdom, if, if, he's, if you're his subject, then everything that's about you, it's about him. He's about it all. He's reigning over it. He's ruling over it. He knows your need. He's already ahead of you on that stuff. And he's going to take care of you. And if your faith is weak and you, you, you fail in your faith, he's bigger than that too. Just turn to him. And if, if your testimony is, is weak and you, you feel like you've blown it with non-Christian friends, or if you feel like your Christian life is an absolute failure, he's bigger than all that. And so I want us to be ministered to as we hear the song sung this morning that he will hold you fast. Because I, I believe this this song has something to say to every one of us, but especially to some of us who have been really doubting whether King Jesus cares to have me in his kingdom anymore. May God bless you. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings. You have always been and you always will be and you will be exalted to the end of our recorded time and beyond as the King of kings and Lord of lords over this spiritual kingdom that you have invited us into. And that will always be true. And what a, an amazing thing it is that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is also our friend. Through the cross, our friend who loves us and because you're the king of kings is always going to be enough for us and is always going to be able to hold us fast, is always going to be able to support us in all things, in all circumstances. We can know that we have an all-powerful God who also is for us and also loves us. And we thank you, Lord, we thank you for these things. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages.
now and forevermore. Amen. My friends, have a wonderful day.